difference in it. To him, called him in the middle of the night, woke him up out of sleep. Said, Samuel, Samuel. He didn't say anything. He went to Eli the priest and he said, What do you want? He goes, I didn't call you. It happened a few times until finally Eli said, I think the Lord's trying to get your attention, buddy. So next time you hear that voice, Samuel, Samuel, say, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. The idea in Hebrew is, I am hearing attentively that I might obey. And so part of our worship, as difficult as it is in modern America, is to sit and listen to the word of the Lord. Because God has something for each and every one of us tonight. He wants to speak to our hearts. Because of that fact, we ask that once the study has begun, everyone remain seated so that you are not the guilty party for distracting others from hearing the word of the Lord by moving to and fro. I cannot promise you tonight that you will like sitting through an hour Bible study, but that's a decision you have to make, and you've made it. <laughs> and all I can say is you might say afterwards, well, this isn't for me. I don't want to listen to Bible studies anymore. I won't come next time. That is your prerogative. We feel the door swings freely both ways. We never cajole people to come in. We never go on large drives or knock on doors of churches to get other people here. But we figure once you're here, we'll minister to you as long as you'd like us to minister to you. If you don't want us to minister anymore in the Word, that's your prerogative. It swings freely both ways. But now the door is shut. Not locked. But we do ask that you remain seated throughout the remainder of the service. Sunday nights. For those of you who are new, is a time where we go through the entire Bible. We've made it through once, took ten years, nine years or so. And um, I had originally planned on going through the Bible in five years. And I found that I just couldn't do it. And so now we're going through it again, all the way through it. For me, the greatest way to study the Bible is not skipping around as much as just going through it verse by verse to get an overall view of it. Because you will find out the mind of God on absolutely every subject that is important to His heart. There will be principles that you can apply to your heart on virtually every subject that's important to God's heart. And you'll see those subjects as they come up in their context, progressively revealed through history, in balance. That's the great thing about going through the Bible. People come up to me sometimes and they say, I wish you'd speak on tithing. You know, that's interesting that somebody would ask me to speak on tithing. Uh, we rarely ever do in this church. You need to tithe. And uh, because of the absence of that, people say, you need to talk on tithing. I say, well, when the Scripture brings it out, we'll bring it out. As we go through the Bible, when the Scripture talks about it, we'll talk about it. And we won't talk about it more than the Scripture talks about it. We'll talk about it as the Scripture talks about it. I find that more pastors speak about it more than God speaks about it. I think it's better just to give God's emphasis. We well, ought to speak more about the family. I said, well, have you listened to our tapes on the family? Well, no, I wasn't here then, so you ought to speak more about it. Well, we will as we go through the Bible, and the Bible brings that up as a topic. You're always safe giving a scriptural emphasis rather than man's emphasis or the issue of the hour. And 
If you could grasp a broad view of the Bible, you will be better for it. Because of that, our second time through now, we have gone through Genesis and then Matthew. We've done an Old and a New Testament flop, just for variety, for spice, and to compare them. We've gone through Genesis and then Matthew, now Exodus and next Mark. What we have done is you have been given a few uh, weeks ago outlines of the book of Exodus. If you didn't get one of these, we'll have them in the back after the service and we'll have them every week uh, for newcomers. It will give you an outline to the book. It will give you key verses, key people. And on this one is a map, the map of the Exodus as they left Egypt. Next week, I'll probably give you another sheet that you can add to it. And we just every few weeks, we'll give you a sheet pertinent to what we're going through. And uh, we have being printed some notebooks, three ring binders this size, that say through the Bible, verse by verse. They'll have tabs of all the books of the Bible. You can insert these in the tab, and there'll be blank paper for you to take notes. That will become valuable to you later on. Six years, you say, you know, I've been asked this question about Exodus chapter 2. Let me look in my notebook. Maybe I wrote something down about that. I have notes, I was looking this last week, that I've taken 20 years ago. I still have many of them. And it's fun to take them out and read them. And just what the Lord was showing me at that time, and I like to keep notes of just about everything. Now I put them all on, on computer. I've had my secretary put them all on computer so that I can have reference to them as the years go by. So uh, you have these outlines. We will be giving you soon, as we get into our next book, Mark, I'll also be giving, passing out a Genesis and Matthew outlines, even though we've already gone through them. At least you'll have outlines to the book and every book of the Bible as we go through it together as a church. So tonight, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. Now let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we approach the Word of God, Figuratively, we come with our shoes off because we are on holy ground. You are present here tonight, Lord. You're not present here because of the building. You don't care for earthly buildings or sanctuaries made with hands. You are here because your people are here. You dwell in the midst of your people. How grateful we are, Lord not only for the fellowship with each other, but most importantly, for your fellowship with us, that you're with us, and that you promise to be with us to the end of the age. Help us now, Lord, to grasp these chapters of the book of Exodus, to glean from them lessons that are important for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a Bible tonight, Borrow your friend's. I mean, share it with a friend. Don't grab it out of his hand. Uh, or take a Bible that is behind you or next in front of you in the seat uh, in front of you. There's white Bibles. They're there for you to use during the service. But tonight we're in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. I should have brought a handout tonight, and I'll probably do it next week or the week after. But you could look at the history of Israel by breaking it up into three fragments. First, there was a theocracy. 
Theocracy meaning God was in charge. He was the boss. He was the ruler. He was calling all the shots. They didn't vote on which God they wanted in office for four years. God was God. He was in charge. He communicated through his spokesman to the people. That was a period that lasted for about 600 years. And I mean the history of Israel as a nation cohesively. Of course, there was the age of the patriarchs before that. But once the nation got together in Egypt, from the time of the going down to Egypt to the first king, King Saul, a period of about 600 years, was a theocracy. God just ruled them. God was in charge. After a period of time, Israel became a little antsy. They didn't like the idea of the fact that this invisible ruler was over them. They wanted to be so much like the other nations, and so they complained to the Lord. They said, we'd like to be like the other nations around us. They have a king. They have some visible person who rules over them. Samuel was grieved with that request, but God said, don't get bummed out, Samuel. Don't let it get to you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from ruling over them. Samuel thought, oh, they're rejecting me as the prophet. I'm hearing from God and telling the people. God says, no, no, they're rejecting me. Give them the king. Give them what they want. And so from Saul to the last king of the southern kingdom, Zedekiah, a period of about 500 years, comes the monarchy. That is where kings are now in charge. So you have a theocracy first, then you have a monarchy, and then the third phase is dependency. As Israel sins, they are taken captive into Babylon for a period of years where they become dependent upon a host nation. And eventually they cry out to God and they return to the land of Israel for a brief period of time. There's an intertestamental period, then we get to the New Testament. And you can subdivide that further. I'll probably pass out a chart because the neat thing about it is you can easily commit this to memory uh, just by memorizing a few easy words. Uh, theocracy, monarchy, dependency, and you've got it down. You have the whole history of a cohesive nation at your fingertips. Tonight, we're looking at chapters 5 and 6, and we get into the confrontation that Moses, the man of God, has with the man of the flesh, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Now remember, up to this point, Moses has had many excuses why he shouldn't serve God. God tries to get his attention. Moses says, oh, I can't speak. Oh, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? And there's all these flaky excuses. Bottom line, Moses didn't want to do it. Send somebody else, Lord, he said. And so God graciously allows Moses to take Aaron, his brother, his older brother, by three years. Moses will hear from God. He'll tell it to Aaron, and Aaron will speak it to Pharaoh. And that's how the order of things. The last few weeks we've talked about excuses, and in application we've simply asked you, what is your excuse? Do you have an excuse of why you are not serving the Lord in some capacity? Are you saying, well, I'm waiting until I learn more about the Bible. Well, I'm waiting until um, I get my act together a little bit more. Oh, I'm waiting until I learn how to speak better. And it could be that the bottom line is, I just won't do it. I'd rather let others do it. It's more convenient for me to watch them do it, and I'll applaud them. 
in this confrontation in chapters 5 and 6, actually the rest of these chapters up to chapter 11, the king that is sitting on the throne is a young kid, we would call him. Uh, his name is Amenhotep. Sounds like an antiseptic. Amenhotep II. He's not the same pharaoh that was in Egypt when Moses began. That was Thumos III. This is now his son, Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II came to the throne when he was 18 years old. And at the time that Moses and Aaron approach him, he's very young in his reign, which may account for his arrogance. He's young and he thinks he knows it all. It takes a while before you realize you don't. He's cocky. He's arrogant. He's brash. As they come in the name of the Lord, he's obstinate, recalcitrant against what God would want in their lives. Afterwards, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now as I hear these words, I can't help but think of another instance in Israel's history later on, at a time when the southern kingdom of Judah is surrounded by Assyrian forces. It's at a time when an invasion took place. Shennacherib up in the north sweeps down into Judah and threatens the people of Jerusalem, saying that we're going to cut you with the edge of the sword. And he sends out his high-ranking officer, known in Syrian as the Rabshakeh, 2 Kings 18. And he stands in front of the walls of Jerusalem as the people are surrounding it. And he says, let me ask you a question, children of Israel. Which of the gods of any of these other kingdoms that we have wiped out have been able to stand against us? Can you name one god who was able to fight us? And then he says, neither will the Lord your God be able to save you from my hand. It's a direct slur against God. Fortunately, the prophet Isaiah in the city of Jerusalem says, Oh, don't worry about him. God will take care of him. You just come and pour out your heart in humility and in faith before the Lord and stand in the name of the Lord with a humble and a repentant heart. Now, Pharaoh, this young whippersnapper, was considered by the people of Egypt to be deity. Now, they had 3,000 gods in Egypt. They didn't worship one god. They were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. They had a god for almost every single thing, and they had a little image or icon. And if you know Egyptology or you've ever seen the uh, museums or you've been to Cairo, you, you see all the icons that are painted on their walls. They have different symbols. Pharaoh was considered to be a deity or to be even a god. They would call him Mighty God. And so he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now that reveals his ignorance and his arrogance. Both of them go together. If you are ignorant of the Lord, you will also be disobedient. You can never expect a person to obey God who doesn't know God, right? The first step, the first step in following God is coming to know him intimately, personally. 
It's a step of repentance and faith and saying, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord. And you become a child of God. You start knowing Him intimately. Then and only then can you obey Him. You can't make a decision tonight simply as a moral decision. You can't say, okay, hey, listen, I've had enough bad stuff happen in my life. I've made a decision tonight. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. You don't have any power. How many New Year's resolutions have you begun in January and ended in February? You made a promise to change your life and it hasn't worked. That's because you have to know God before you can obey Him. Jesus prays in John 17 to His Father. It says, Jesus spoke. He lifted up His eyes toward heaven and He said, Father, the hour has now come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You, as You have given Him authority over all flesh. And as many as You have given to Him, He has kept. And it says, This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life right there. You come to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Once you know him, then you obey him. Pharaoh doesn't know him. You can't expect somebody who doesn't know him to obey him, except this guy's a little cockier than just, you know, I don't know the Lord, man. I'd really like to know him. So who is the Lord? Well, he's about to find out. He's about to find out by plagues. You know, a lot of people today will say the same thing. They will be very obstinate against the Lord. Oh, I don't know who God is. I'm not going to bow my knee to God. I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. I'm a self-made man. I'm a rock. I'm an island. Yeah, but you might be like Atlantis. You have a breaking point. You may say tonight, I will never bow my knee to God. Oh, yes, you will. You will either bow now, voluntarily, or you will bow later, forcibly. At the name of Jesus Christ, Philippians says, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you might bow now and say, I receive him as my Lord now. If you bow now, you can do it voluntarily. But you can be obstinate now. You can live your life the way you want to. But in the end, you will bow. But it won't be pretty. And you will be separated from God after that moment. Best to bow now. Instead of to hold a fist to God and say, I'm not going to bow. Who is the Lord? And so God's about to introduce him. Now, a note on these plagues. He says, who is the Lord? Now begins this encounter with conflict. And just a word about these ten plagues that are coming. I figure we should just cover them now. As we get into them, you'll have them in your mind as background. The ten plagues are to reveal to Pharaoh who God is. Who is the Lord? Okay, you want to know who God is? Let's have a little showdown, a little battle of the gods. You've got 3,000 gods. Pit them all against the one God, and he'll show you up. And actually, the judgments upon Egypt are judgments upon the gods of Egypt. Would you turn with me to chapter 12 of Exodus? Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, judgment number one is that the water of the Nile River turns into blood. The Nile River, of course, was the life spring of the nation of Egypt. Its headwaters are at Lake Victoria. It winds its way through northern Africa. It ends up in northern Africa in Egypt. It brings with it all of the water, all of the silt. And so it's rich alluvial soil, beautiful for planting crops. Egypt depend, depends, I should say still depends, upon the Nile River. But back then especially depended on the Nile River, especially overflowing. They would make channels out of it, sort of like we do down in the Rio Grande. We take the river and divert it and make little channels for farms and so forth. They did that in Egypt. It was sacred. It was the giver of life. In fact, there was an ancient hymn that the Egyptians made up. And they sung it about the Nile River that said, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. God says, All right, you worship the Nile, I will judge it. It won't bring forth life, it will bring forth death. And it turns to blood. He's judging their gods. The second plague, <laughs> excuse me, is a plague of frogs. The Egyptians worshipped the ugly goddess Heka, the frog goddess. One of the most beautiful temples in Memphis, Egypt, is to Heka, the frog goddess. They worshipped frogs. It was against the law to kill a frog. You couldn't go into an Egyptian restaurant and have frog legs. You'd be thrown in jail or killed. You just ate a god. And so it's sort of humorous. God says, oh, you really love and worship frogs, do you? I'll give you more than you can handle. And it says that there were frogs in their bedchambers, frogs in their kneading troughs when the women went in to make baked breads and in their ovens. They'd open the ovens. You can't kill it. It's your god. And they had frogs ad nauseum. God was judging them. The third plague was lice. Hard to imagine. God was judging the fact that they worshipped Geb, the god of the earth. And so the very dust of the earth becomes lice. The fourth was flies. I don't know about you, but I have been in situations, I was in... Somalia and Sudan a few months ago. I don't know. The, the flies are like on steroids or something. I mean, they're massive. I hate bugs. I don't like them. I mean, I tolerate them like you, but there's certain parts of the world I've been in. It's like, you know, the bugs are like taking over. Most people think that this plague of flies that came upon Egypt were really a swarm of the scarab beetle. And as you know, if you've gone to Egypt, there are scarab beetles depicted on all of the uh, tombs in Egypt. The scarab beetle represents eternal life. So God gave them more than they could handle. And uh, I, I just can't imagine to have that many beetles swarming around, the bugs all the time. I was in the Philippines a few years back. And uh, I was doing a conference down in Mindanao, one of the southern islands. And uh, we would walk every day. And we would teach for four hours, have lunch, go back to the hotel, walk back in the afternoon, and have four more hours of teaching and go back to the hotel. When I went one of the days to our evening session, 
I noticed a whole group of young kids swarming around a palm tree, a coconut tree. So I went over there to see what they were looking at. I said, well, what do you see? And they said, oh, it's a coconut weevil. It's a form of a beetle. And so I said, well, let me look at it. The, no joke. Somebody that I, in fact, the guy I was with took a picture of this thing. The beetle was about the size of my hand. It had a hard shell on it. You could tap it like this, you know. You, you would, it's like an encasement, a Darth Vader looking kind of a bug. And this one kid had his foot on it. And as he had his foot on it, this little bug, as small as it was, was so strong that it would push the weight of his body back up. He would be kind of going back and forth as this bug would kind of do push-ups. And I thought, I've never seen a bug like this. They said, yeah, it lives around the coconut trees. It's called a coconut weevil. I came back a few minutes later and I said, oh, where is it? I wanted to show somebody else. They said, it flew away. I said, it's mobile? I mean, like, I could be walking home and... What if he got all of his friends and decided to carry me somewhere? I mean, this thing was huge. I'd hate to be the Egyptians. God was getting their attention. God was judging their false system of worship. The fifth plague was pestilence. That was a, a moraine, a disease upon the livestock. They worshipped Apis the bull, and so all of the cattle, the bulls, were afflicted with his pestilence. Boils came out upon the priests and all the people of Egypt. And of course, in the Egyptian system of worship, a priest had to be absolutely clean of any skin disease before he could enter in and worship, and so there was a moratorium on worship. None of them could worship or pray to their false gods because everyone was afflicted, including the priests. The next plague was hail as God was judging their worship of the sky goddess. And the next plague was locusts, as God was judging their worship of the insect gods. And it destroyed much of the crops. And then finally, not finally, but almost finally, there was that ultimate plague on the chief of all the gods, Ra, Amun-Ra, the sun god. And how do you judge them in that? A complete darkness came over all the land. So thick it could be felt the scripture says. God was judging their worship of Amun-Ra, the sun god. And then, of course, the tenth plague was the judgment of the firstborn of all the people in the land of Egypt at the Passover. Now, in verse 3, so they said, this is Moses and Aaron again, the God of the Hebrews met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. You know, people who do not listen to God will not listen to God's messengers. People who have no time for God have a very short temper with people who claim to speak in the name of the Lord. So remember that next time you bring a message or you witness to somebody who's not a Christian. They get all uptight with you. It's because they have no desire to let God rule over their life. It's not really anger at you. It's rebellion against the Lord Himself. But, hang in there. Unless they're blatantly blasphemous with the stuff that you say, hang in there, man. Persevere with them. 
Look for those times to share nuggets of truth. I remember when I worked in California, there was a few people that I had in the hospital. They'd, oh, I'd come in and they'd make fun of me. Oh, the preacher's here. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. They would just kind of go out of their way and just ridicule me. Now, I have a quick tongue and I could easily ridicule them, but and it, that was a trial in and of itself just to hold back. And there was this one girl named Margaret. She was obstinate. She would stop and say, how can you believe this rubbish? This is so stupid. And she would uh, come and she would revel in the fact that she had partied the last week and what she had done and uh, so forth. And, you know, everybody said, oh, she's really hard. Well, we kept witnessing. There was another guy named Gary. And Gary said, oh, don't talk to me about the Lord. And he was also very hardened. But we just kept persisting, kept sharing, as the Lord would give the ability and then in the emergency room, there was a guy named Dennis. He was an emergency room physician. He said, oh, come on. I, I'm a scientist. You didn't expect me to believe this nonsense. I know that evolution works. I'm a doctor. I studied this. We kept praying for him. We kept witnessing to him. Finally, all three of them came to know Jesus Christ. They opened up their hearts, and they have become now the catalyst in that same realm, sharing the gospel with people. God just worked. So they were turned away at this time, but don't worry, God will get their attention. Now remember, this is only Moses and Aaron's first encounter with Pharaoh. He's hardened. He doesn't want to let them go. But here's a pattern I want you to pick up, that we see it here in the scripture. At first, God is dealing with Pharaoh in grace. Later on, he'll deal in judgment. He's warning him, let my people go. No, I won't do it. He's going to warn him ten times. He's going to deal in grace. Eventually, God will say, okay, if you're not going to let him go, if you're going to be that hardened, you will know that I am God, and in judgment you will let them go. God will first deal in grace, then God will deal in judgment. Don't ever come up with this notion that the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful, wrathful God. The God of the New Testament is somehow different, this loving God. They're both the same. God was gracious in the Old Testament. Let my people go. No. All right, fine. Don't worry, you will. You'll listen. Albeit they didn't at first. It's a pattern you see all the way through Scripture. Before God sent the flood, He sent Noah. Before Noah, He sent Enoch. Both of them were preachers of righteousness. People didn't listen. God judged by sending the flood. And you see that as a pattern throughout the Scripture. Verse 5. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now. And you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they have made before. You shall not diminish it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard, notice, let them not regard false words. Right there you get insight into Pharaoh's heart. He regards divine revelation as what? False words. You know any people like that? You quote the scripture to them, oh, man made that up. Those are false words.
When Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, he was allowed to give his defense before King Herod Agrippa II. He's in the amphitheater there in Caesarea. Agrippa is before him, Bernice is next to him, Festus is there. The entourage, the Jews are there accusing him from Jerusalem. He stands up and he gives his defense and he says, Agrippa, I want you to know something. I'm not saying anything differently than what Moses and the prophets have said would happen. That the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, and that he'd be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now at that point, Festus interrupts him because he spoke about the resurrection of the dead. He stood up and he said, Paul, your much learning has made you mad. You're nuts. These words of a resurrection are absolute nonsense. Paul said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak words of reason and of truth. But divine revelation is to so many people just false words, words of madness. 1 Corinthians tells us the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You wonder when you share with people why they become hostile or can't pick it up. It's because they haven't opened up to the things of the Spirit. I've told you many times the story of the girl. I, used to sh- I uh, went to, down to the pier one evening and I shared the gospel in Huntington Beach. And uh, I used to take people out on the street witnessing just to train them how to share their faith. And uh, I would say, hey, let's go out witnessing tonight. And they'd say, oh, I don't know how to witness. i say, well, you don't have to. Just watch me and pray for me. And uh, let's just see what the Lord does. So they would go out and pray while I would share. And I was just forming a model for them. And eventually they were so excited because one night we saw 11, 12, 13 come to Christ within a few hours. And they got so excited they wanted to jump in. And I remember talking to this one gal and she said, uh, she had so many questions and I'd answer them. And she goes, but I have too many questions. I have too many concerns. If you can answer all my questions, then I'll accept your Christ. I said, no, let's reverse that. Why don't you accept him right now? Your heart knows you need him. And then we'll sit down tomorrow and go through all of your questions, all of your concerns. She said, fair enough. She prayed, and as she prayed, God, the Spirit of God broke her. She just wept. And after a few minutes, she wiped the tears from her eyes, and she said, I don't think I have any more questions. Just the Spirit of God settled within her heart as she received him. All of those issues... The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. He cannot know them. But it's important that we share them with people as much as we can because judgment time is approaching. You know, I know that we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Life gets tough for us sometimes. We go, oh, I just wish the Lord had come back. I just wish I'd just get out of here. Listen, this is the last opportunity you'll have in your history to ever share the gospel is on earth. You'll never get to share the gospel with another person in heaven. Your testimony days will be over. Make the best of it now. Go for the gusto now. This is the last chance you'll ever have to suffer as a Christian. This is the only chance you have to store up those rewards in heaven is right here. We ought to look at it that way. I remember Roy Gustafson, a friend of mine from the Billy Graham Association, was talking with a young lady, and she just said, I hope Jesus comes back soon this year. And Roy turned to her and said, I hope for your sake he doesn't. She said, what do you mean? And he gave that answer. This is the only time you'll ever have to share your faith, to witness, and to suffer for the Lord. These people need to hear. Get out there and share with them. 
And the taskmasters, verse 10, of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be diminished. Same quota, but you've got to provide your own. So the people were scattered abroad throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. Now, <clears throat> under conviction, Pharaoh's heart became more intense. He became harder. He became more obstinate. He made life harder on people. If you are living with a person under conviction who's not a Christian, I feel sorry for you. Let me know who you are. We'll pray extra hard for you. Because if you're living with an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife or a child or a parent, and when you share the gospel, when their hearts begin to get convicted, they become more hostile and agitated, it's because God's working on their hearts. They know it's the truth. They're under conviction. They're not secure in their position as an unbeliever. And you touch that raw nerve and they re respond. They react. There's hostility. And one of the hardest people to live with, the hardest person to live with is a person under conviction who's not yielding to the Spirit of God. It's tough. They can make your life miserable. They can say the worst, most unloving, most unkind things. They can make life hard like this guy. Resisting the light means increased darkness. He's hardening his heart. Whenever the devil sees a person coming close to Jesus Christ, don't you know he's going to work overtime to keep that person from coming to Christ? If his heart begins to open, the devil goes, oh, plan B. Bring in extra troops. Cover the backside. Cover the rear. Cover the side. Whenever a person says, I think I need to know God, there's going to be an attack, a war for the soul. Or whenever a Christian says, by golly, I'm going to serve God now with all my heart. I'm going to get off the sidelines. I'm not going to be a pupitate anymore. And I'm going to serve the Lord with all my heart. You're going to have an attack. You're going to have some kind of a reaction in the kingdom of darkness. Satan never gives up his prey without a struggle. There's a story in the New Testament about a demon-possessed boy who came to Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, as he was yet coming, the demon threw him down and tore him. Here's the enemy's strategy. At all costs, keep people from Jesus. Get them into the New Age, get them into liberalism, get them into anything else, intellectualism, but keep them away from Jesus. Second strategy. Once they are Christians, the enemy's strategy is let's stagnate them. Let's make them flat, insipid, apathetic, just stifled. Grow inward. The moment you say, no, I'm going to go further, there's an attack. One person said, so long as a person has no desire to come to Christ, the devil will leave him alone. But once a soul is awakened to his need of a Savior and begins to seriously seek him, Satan will put forth every effort to hinder him. Let my people go. No, I'm going to make life more miserable for you, Pharaoh said. Verse 13, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters has set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task 
in making brick both yesterday and today as before. Boy, their life was getting more miserable. Here God said, I would deliver you. God said, I will take you from their bondage. But it's getting worse. Now there's a picture here, a spiritual picture. Don't miss it. Being slaves in Egypt is a picture of people before they come to Jesus Christ. We see that in the New Testament. That's a foreshadow of a spiritual truth. Before you come to Christ, you are in bondage. And you have no capacity to help or to better your situation. You need help from the outside. You need God's intervention. They could only look up. They could only look up to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, At that time you were without Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. Jesus said a man must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You were born once, but you're still in bondage if you don't know Christ until you're born a second time. Then there comes the deliverance from that bondage and freedom in a new life. We have seen so many people enslaved, enslaved by habits, enslaved by drugs, by alcohol, pornography, a variety of habits where Satan has got an oppressive stronghold on them. And we've seen how God has the power to deliver people from those strongholds, to give them new appetites, new desires, new power to overcome, power to say no to sin. You're either a slave, Paul said, of righteousness unto God or unrighteousness. And so there's a picture here of an unbeliever actually coming to Christ. Verse 15. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. In other words, you're so lazy. You are idle, you are idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. The reason you want to leave is you don't got anything to do. I'll give you more work. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not diminish any bricks from your daily quota. Living in New Mexico, you have a good idea of what Egyptian bricks were like. They were adobe. They were moistened clay. They put straw within them. They took clay, uh, mixed it with water. They put bits of straw in it. They let it out in the sun to dry. They put it in little forms. Uh, they were probably anywhere from 14 to 20 inches long, 6 to 9 inches wide, and uh, 4 to 7 inches thick. The straw was to give them a little more um, strength as well as to keep them from sticking to the forms that they were laid in. And uh, there came a time where they said, go get your own uh, straw. And so they had to go out and get stubble, weeds. And, uh, you know, it was a um, poor substitute. Interestingly enough, archaeology has uncovered the remains of the city of Python, where the bricks were laid, adobe bricks, to make some of the homes, some of the fortresses, and so forth. And they found that the bottom layer were bricks that were cut into even forms like we just described with even cuts of straw laced in the adobe brick. And then a layer that was higher as you would get up 
was the uh, clay, but weeds were in it, stubble. And then the very highest level, there was nothing at all, just clay. Bearing eloquent testimony to the veracity of the Scripture. Then, verse 20, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look upon you and judge. Now, picture yourself being Moses and Aaron. It took God 40 years to break you and convince you. You just gave five excuses why you can't do it. Finally, you say, Okay, I'll do it. God says, Don't worry. It'll work. And now you're going to your people. And look what they say. They said, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. You know, opposition within the ranks of God's people is always worse than persecution from outside. Persecution from non-believers, well, you can expect that, you know. In fact, when an unbeliever persecutes me, I, I don't mind it. I always say, thank you, Lord, that I'm be able to suffer for your sake, for the right reason. In fact, when you have unbelievers uh, to some degree angry with you, you narrow-minded, how can you say Jesus is only one way? You know you're walking the right path. But to get opposition from within your own ranks, within your own friendship circles, to be stabbed in the back by somebody that you loved and trusted as another child of God, that hurts. And here these people are complaining against Moses and Aaron. How typical. When things go bad, since God is invisible, blame it on His visible representatives. I have people all the time angry as they read the Bible. And they, they want to have a few words with me. I've been reading the Bible lately. Why does God do this and why does God do that? I don't know. There's a lot of things. I, I can't explain why God always does what He does. I don't like to get into those kind of arguments of why God does. God does it. Well, you ought to know, and you... And they're angry at me. Now, God is working behind the scenes, but they can't see Him. He's invisible. They can see Moses and Aaron. All right, take it out on those turkeys. They got us into this mess. Being misunderstood is very difficult because there's no defense. Somebody will come up and they'll say something or, or they'll hear something that was said or they'll mistake a, uh, a thing that you have done and they'll misjudge you and then they've already passed judgment against you. And the harder you try to explain it, the worse it gets. There's no defense. They've just passed judgment. How do you think David felt? He was called by God. He went out as this brave little boy, took a sling in his hand, <laughs> Hit Goliath, he fell over, everybody saw that he was a hero. Coming back from the battle after they wiped out the Philistines, the women took to the streets with tambourines. They were dancing, they were excited. As King Saul was marching with his entourage back to the city of Jerusalem, these women came out with their tambourines and they started singing. Saul has slain his thousands. Saul probably sat up tall. It's me they're singing about. But David has slain his tens of thousands. What? What are they singing about him for? And he started making this value judgment, misunderstanding David. That young creep. He wants my job. He wants the throne. What more can he have but the kingdom? And it says that Saul cast suspicious eyes from that day forward upon David. 
seeing every move David made with great suspicion, he was misjudged. Moses and Aaron probably walked away going, I can't believe it. Why would God let this happen? He told us to go. Now look what happens. It backfired. So Moses returned to the Lord. Good move, Mo. And said, Why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. He's confused. After all the miracles, the burning bush, it backfired. To Moses, there seems to be a discrepancy between what God said would happen and what happened. God, you said if I go, you'd work. I went, you didn't work. Here's the problem. Listen carefully. We often, when God calls us to do something, presuppose the way God is going to do it. The Bible says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that we should be his counselor? Who has counseled God? Well, let's be honest. I have. You have, right? There's been some times when God hasn't moved like you wanted him to move. And you thought, God, you had a perfect opportunity. You should have listened to me. I was giving you your cue. You had a great opportunity to intervene there and work it that way. It would have been perfect. You blew it. Now, God, let me show you how it should be done. Have a seat in my office. I'll give you a counseling session. It'll be free. We presuppose the way God will do it. God said he would deliver. Moses didn't listen to God. Go back with me to chapter 3. Look at verse 18. This is what God said. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt, speaking of the plagues, with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that... He will let you go. We presume that we know exactly how God's going to do it. And when God doesn't do it our way, oh, God, you blew it. God, look, just let me be in charge now, will you? Oh, sometimes we get in his way. And Moses is chafing now under the whole misconception of how God would do it. Now, in chapter 6, I love the Lord. He graciously handles this distraught prophet. He doesn't cast him aside and just say, look, Moses... You're right. You can't talk. You're right. You don't know all the answers. And I'm just sick and tired of you. I'm going to get somebody else. In fact, just go take a vacation somewhere, would you? I'm going to just use Aaron alone. Forget you. No, God is graciously, persistently going to use him and renews his commission. And the Lord said to Moses, I love it. <coughs> now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Here's Pharaoh going, who's the Lord? This is what I'm going to do to you Israelites. Uh, Moses, let me tell you what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. That's that tetragrammaton, the ineffable name of God, the unpronounceable name of God. I am Yahweh. Now, God isn't reminding Moses of his name. He's saying... Remember the revelation. 
I am that everlasting, eternal God who fulfills His promises. I am that I am. It's going to work. I'm faithful. Hang in there. And so he says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, that ineffable name of God, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of my ch- the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. The Hebrew for God Almighty in the text is El Shaddai. You remember, I think, in Genesis chapter 17, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram. And he said, I am Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant with you. And he renews the covenant there in Genesis chapter 17. El Shaddai, the Almighty God. When God says, by Yahweh, I was not known to them, what he means is this. He doesn't mean that they never heard the name Yahweh or Jehovah, however it was pronounced, because they did. It's recorded in Genesis a few times. But the idea is that they knew him more as Almighty God, El Shaddai. That's how God revealed himself. Now God is revealing himself more as the all-eternal becoming one. God will become whatever you need, even in times of deliverance. It's a new revelation of God. It's a new chapter that is being turned in their history. Also, it's a new revelation in the sense of God speaking to Moses. You see, Moses is now God's mouthpiece. The Bible says of Moses that he talked with God face to face as a man would speak to his friend. God would speak directly to Moses. Moses would speak directly to the people, or actually he'd speak to Aaron, and Aaron would give the message out. But he would speak to Moses, and God, of course, gave Moses the law, uh, a new covenant in the history of Israel, which would forever change the way they would deal with the Lord. Therefore, verse 6, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arms with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they would not listen to Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. An oppressed person, a person who has gone through tragedy with bitterness, is often hard to break through that callousness. They're very tough. I love the Lord because He's patient with these people. Unfortunately, Moses has to be patient with these people too. And he's not used to that. And they wouldn't listen because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Notice as we read those verses, seven times God says, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. He says it seven times. You know there's an emphasis there, and I want you to pick up on this. 
Because I think a lot of Christians have it backwards today. The emphasis here in redemption, as it is still today, is not what you should be doing for God. The emphasis is what God will do for you. That's the emphasis in redemption. God doesn't say redeem yourself. I hear from pulpits preached all the time, you ought to be praying more, you ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing, oh you rats, heaping guilt upon the congregation instead of feeding them the truth of how to do it. It's just guilt, guilt, guilt. You, 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 you're not doing this enough. The true emphasis of the gospel is this is what God has done for you. When a person really grasps that, he rests in grace. And resting in grace, he becomes motivated to serve the Lord, not out of guilt, but out of love. He's motivated. Oh, I want to serve the Lord. I love him so much. He's blessed me so much. He's redeemed me. And because of that, my motivation is to serve him. Now, guilt is a powerful motivator. I remember some of my first Bible studies were so filled with it. I've repented of it. But the emphasis, the true emphasis, is what God has done for you. And then you respond. And you know what? Until that truth penetrates your hearts, I don't think you'll ever rest completely in the Lord. Remember how Paul would start his letters? Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace always precedes peace. Because until you know the grace of God, you'll never experience the peace of God. When you see that God has loved you, God accepts you as you are, God forgives you of your past, God has done this for you, and you say, then I receive Jesus Christ into my life. I repent of my sins, and I'll follow him. But the emphasis is what God has done for you. Verse 6, God says, I will bring them out of the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue them from their bondage. Do you see a corollary in your redemption there? You were in bondage in the past. You were under the burden of sin. Jesus came along and said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I am lowly and gentle of heart, and you will find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He delivered us from under the bondage of the Egyptians. You don't have to carry that burden of guilt anymore. You don't have to carry it. Release it to him. I was given this letter by our tape room. We get letters all the time, and I asked for a one letter in particular as we're doing our uh, December mail-out to the radio audience. It says, Dear Calvary Connection, I hear your broadcast on K-Light FM in Albuquerque. He's writing from the state penitentiary in Santa Fe. I prayed with Skip the prayer of salvation, and I am interested in receiving the survival kits offered. I'm in prison here in New Mexico, and I have been incarcerated since 1983. I have fought against coming to Jesus while in prison because I've seen so many others do this and turn again to violence. So I felt that it was some sort of a game, but now I realize that now is the time to make a commitment and to serve the Lord. So please send me that survival kit and any other aids that you deem necessary to help solidify my commitment for Jesus Christ. Thank you in Christ. And he signs his name. 
He struggled for a long time in that bondage, and he saw other people and saw hypocrisy. He finally released, and he's growing in Christ. How exciting to see God change a life and deliver them from the Egyptians, uh, from the uh, labor, the hard labor. Also in verse 6, God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. For your notes, you might want to remember this. The word redeem is an important word in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is ga'al, G-A-A-L, transliterated into English. Ga'al, to redeem, to buy back. When we get to the book of Ruth, you can refer back to this word because you come up with the term goel, which means kinsman redeemer, which comes from the word ga'al, to redeem. A kinsman redeemer, according to the Hebrews, was a near relative of someone in the family who had lost all of his belongings because he was too poor to keep up the payment or he himself became a slave. It was the responsibility of the nearest of kin, the kinsman redeemer, to redeem that person back. Boaz becomes the goel, the kinsman redeemer, for Ruth. Jesus Christ is foreshadowed as the kinsman redeemer sent by God to buy the world back to God. He becomes our goel, the redemption of the world back to himself. And then verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Not only did God bring them out of bondage, he wanted to bring them into the land. God has brought you out of the bondage of sin. But folks, that's the beginning. We get all excited when we see salvations. I do too. I love seeing people make decisions for Christ. I love it. And even this morning as people were making commitments in the back room, a young man came up to me and introduced himself. said, hey, I love just coming to church here. It was great. I never met him, so I asked him his name. And I said, are you a believer? He said, well, I've always believed in God. So I probed a little longer, and basically he said he had never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. We talked about it. And he prayed to receive the Christ. He looked like kind of a young, kind of a tough kind of a guy. But the Lord melted him and he just broke down and wept. Received Christ into his heart. Love to see those changes. But now, I want to see him grow. I want to see him become mature so that he can lead other people to Christ. As Paul said, we want to present every man mature in Christ. Growing up into the full stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a lot of Christians who get out of Egypt and they stay in the wilderness. They don't enter the land of promise. They're just always struggling, always fighting, going forward, backsliding. A step forward, five steps back. Instead of going all the way through, grabbing the promises of God and entering into the land. That's what God says I want to do with you. Not just take you out of Egypt, but give you a new land. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go and speak to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that he must let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me, how then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Same excuse. The Lord said, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, glance over verses 14 through 27. There is a genealogy, a partial genealogy given. I'm not going to read all the way through it. Uh, I have done it, and uh, it's a fun exercise, especially if you want to practice your pronunciation of Old Testament names. It's a great tongue twister kind of a thing. 
There's a partial genealogy, a word about genealogies. You read a lot of them in the Old Testament. And probably when you come to them, you think something like, oh no, not another bunch of names. Why does God include this anyway? I mean, it's hard to read through them. We think, what practical stuff is there in this? We say genealogies aren't important to us, but they're very important to God. God's sort of showing off His people. Also, they're important to Jews of the Old Testament, and here's why. They did not have access to much written material or the ability to keep things in written form, so they committed them to memory. And the family trees were important. In fact, to this day, you can still find Bedouins in the Middle East who could sit down in their tent and start rattling off for an hour or two without making any mistakes their lineage as far back as it goes. They're trained to do that from children. Why is it important to remember these names? Well, it was important so that you could keep track of family land allotments. As you get into the land of Israel, you've got to know what tribe is who and what land belongs to what family. It was also important for the priesthood. In Nehemiah chapter 7, they come back from the captivity. Who's the priests? You've got to be able to prove your genealogy so that you can serve as a priest in the t- temple. It was important for wilderness wanderings, the military. In fact, uh, I hope to give you some kind of a diagram of how the children of Israel camped around the tabernacle, and they had to camp in uh, four general quadrants, divided up also in in, uh, tribes and in families, with heads of families, and it was a structured military order, so you had to know your family. It was also used to keep uh, um, tabs on tithes and offerings and taxes for the sanctuary worship, and especially important for the royal lineage of the king. That's why you have two genealogies in the New Testament of Jesus Christ to show you that he has the Davidic right to the throne. And uh, he has also escaped the blood curse we've talked about in the past. And so it says these are the heads of them. But look at verse 16. I do want to draw your attention to that in closing. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. At least remember that those names are important. You might even want to commit those three names to memory. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari are the three sons of Levi who will be in charge of the tabernacle. And in a few weeks, you'll be reading about the tabernacle, the setting up, the tearing down, and what it means. These are the three guys that are in charge of it. Now, you see the name Kohath? Have you ever heard of the name Cohen? Like, you know, maybe a Dr. Cohen or a Mr. Cohen? That's a Jewish name that goes back to the family of Kohath, a Kohathite. Most Jews today cannot trace their genealogy or their lineage, but there are certain names that are giveaways, and one is Cohen that goes back to the Kohathites, the priestly tribe who kept the tabernacle of Levi. And so the names are given. In verse 27, these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. (laughs) But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Oh God, so patient. What is interesting as we close is that God chose to reveal himself 
to Pharaoh through judgment, through ten plagues. He didn't have to. You know, Pharaoh would have said, okay, Moses, really, who is the Lord? I want to know him. We've got 3,000 gods, but if there is somebody different and more powerful, as powerful as you say, who is he? But he didn't humble himself, and so God dealt with him in judgments. There are many who today ridicule the laws of God and who say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? But in contrast to that, David said, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who observes the law of God and meditates on it day and night. And David in Psalm 1 describes his life as one who is growing and prosperous and blessed with the presence of God. It could be that there are some tonight who have known about God. You've heard his name growing up. You even had a picture of Jesus in your house. You heard his name on Sundays. You were religious. Your parents went to church. You went to church. Oh, you believe God exists. You would call yourself a believing person. You believe in the existence of God. But you don't know the Lord. You sense in your own life a lack of power to overcome those things that are holding you back, plaguing you. You live still under a sense of guilt, remorse, but you don't know how to get out of it. Cast your burden, the Bible says, upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. You've got to come to Him and know Him first. And then in knowing Him, and you see what He does for you, you'll be motivated to serve Him and obey Him. But you've got to come to know Him first. And that means you make a commitment to Jesus Christ, 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 to Jesus Christ.